Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Fellowship Podcast. We hope this message will inspire, challenge, and encourage you to grow closer to Christ. If you're in the Anchorage area, we invite you to be our guest during our morning Sunday worship service at 11 a.m. For directions, or if you would like more information about us, please visit akmaranatha.com. God doesn't deal with us according to what we deserve. Amen. Uh, There's a few of us up here. You get it. All right. The rest of us, I hope by the end of the message, we'll get it that God has granted us standing with him. And the the song we just sang, we're talking about having relationship with God and not just religion. Religion can be full of rituals and it can be some uh, set of activities or... uh, like a better word, rituals that we tick the boxes and we say, I've done that and now I'm good with God. And, and relationship is more than that. How many realize that sometimes relationship, it's, a, it's an invitation to uh, sometimes a complicated thing. And if you just uh, had like a list of how you were going to address your spouse and said, okay, I need to say, hello, honey, I love you. And you just had this list, and then I need to make sure that uh, I empty the dishwasher, and I need to make sure I do all of these things. But there's no communication. There's no uh, true encounter with one another. Uh, would anybody here call that a really healthy situation? Would anybody call that a relationship? Sounds like somebody got a job with, uh, uh, with certain expectations and a job description. And what God is calling us to is more than that. Uh, certainly there are rituals to what we do. And I think the rituals, if they're within relationship, can be healthy. But we need to understand our place and our standing in God. And this uh, whole message here begins in chapter 4. And uh, if you were here Wednesday night, this kind of carries over a little bit from what we talked about Wednesday night, in that the cross is the justice of God. But uh, this may present the other side of that, or at least expand upon that. Let's look at Romans chapter 4, and uh, why don't we start reading in, uh, let's start reading that last paragraph there, and I'll fill in some of the details. It says, against all hope, this is verse 18, against all hope, Abraham in hope believed, and so became the father of many nations, just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being, being fully persuaded that God had power to do just what he had promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words, it was credited to him, were written not to him alone, but also for us to whom God will credit righteousness, for us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. There's a, a lot in the, the passage we just read, but let's, let's carry on uh, here into chapter 5. It says, therefore, and anytime we see therefore, what, is it, what does it mean? It's, we see what it's there for, and we look back a little bit into the passage prior to that and ask the question, what is being talked about? Therefore, since all the things that we just read are true, that we've been justified by faith, uh, therefore, because uh, Christ died for our sins, because he 
uh, he justified us through his resurrection. Therefore, since we've been justified through faith, now that's the summary of everything that Paul has just said, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through him, uh, excuse me, through whom we have gained access by faith into the grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God, not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produced perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. All right, so let's start with this thought. This goes back into the early part of the story that Abraham at one point and throughout his life believed God. He put his faith in God. Are you with me so far? God said to him something really outrageous. I'm going to make you the father of many nations. And he's getting up there, and so is his wife. They're, they're getting up there, and they don't have any kids. And so God says to Sarah, I was just thinking about how hilarious this story is. Uh, she, he says to Abraham and Sarah, you're going to have a child. And Sarah laughs. Remember Genesis 18 and 19? And, uh, and God says, the laugh's on you, babe. Because you're going to call his name Laughter, Isaac, Yitzhak. It means laughter. You're going to call his name Laughter. And so every day when you call him in from playing, you're going to remember that you laughed about this because it's really outrageous. But God is going to do something outrageous for you. And uh, you know that prior to that, God had said to Abraham, I want you to go off into a land that I will show you. And you're just, trust, you're just to trust me. And so uh, he did that. He responded with a walk to, with God. So what I want to really point out here is that Abraham believed God. He wasn't just believing for a miracle. He was believing in the God of miracles. And that's a really important distinction because uh, I think uh, this is the place where sometimes people struggle with faith is that they're trying to believe for the impossible and they're not believing in the impossible God. Do you understand the distinction there? That it's important that we, it's not just the miracle we're believing for, but it's the God of miracles that we're believing in. And if God is a God of miracles, he can do whatever he wants, right? If we allow just one miracle into the system, if we say one impossible thing has happened, we can trust that God is able to do whatever he says he is going to do. And so faith is uh, more than that. God is, uh, when we, we treat uh, the miracle is the thing we're looking for alone, then it treats God only as a means. It's like they're believing through God that a miracle can happen instead of believing in God. And the reason Abraham could believe in God was because God had made the promise to him, and he believed the promise because he believed God. God was powerful enough, and so instead of thinking the miracle uh, is all his responsibility, just sometimes we think the miracle is our responsibility, Abraham believed and he trusted God, okay? So he trusted God, and faith is important. Faith, you can call it faith, you can call it trust, belief. All three of those things work uh, as one, you understand. And so when we're believing God, we're trusting God. We're trusting that he knows the direction that he is going to do what's best for our life. And you realize that that kind of faith, that kind of trust is necessary for any relationship that's ongoing, You have to believe in that person. You have to trust that person. How hard is it to have a relationship with somebody that you don't trust? It's very hard. You don't know how they're going to wound things, how they're going to respond to certain things. And if you're uh, a parent, you understand how important trust is to that relationship. 
Like you want to tell your kids, please don't do that. If you do that, you'll be sorry. And a lot of times when you're a kid, you think, my parents, they don't understand our times. Or they don't know what life is really like. I mean, in our minds, they've always been old. Right? And so they don't really understand what I'm going through. And the fact of the matter is, if we only had trusted them more, our life probably would have been better in most cases. Right? And so I, I, we understand a parent-child relationship is going to work as it should. The child has to trust the parent that they know what they're talking about even better than child knows. And it's that way in our relationship with God. Probably the best paradigm for understanding this is that God is our Father. And for that relationship to really work the way it should, we need to trust Him and believe what He says. The kind of faith that's being talked about here is not the kind of faith that says only, I believe Jesus died on the cross. That's included. But I want to suggest to you that there are a lot of people that go that far, but they don't really trust God with their lives. They're trusting him with some far-off, nebulous idea of an eternity out there that God's going to cover me when that time comes. But I don't know how good he is at dealing with the here and now. And so when it comes to obeying him, we kind of shirk his commands and we act like he really didn't say that or maybe he doesn't know what he's talking about in my life or, uh, you know, God, I really need to be in control. Anybody have that problem besides me? Like... I trust you, God, but I would like to keep a hand on the wheel, right? And what really faith is, this kind of saving faith, is the kind of faith that leans fully on Jesus. Okay, so we're putting our full weight upon him. All right, so in Romans 4, I know we're in chapter 5, that's where we're going to spend most of our time this morning, but um, in Romans 4, 3, the Bible says, what does Scripture say it says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. He believed God. He trusted God. He put his weight upon God, and God credited it to him as righteousness. He said, I'm going to credit that to you as righteousness. Now, we probably understand. I don't know if any. Does anybody still do checks? Okay. Anybody old school a little bit? You still write out checks? Are you the person that waits till you get to the cash register to pull out your checkbook? Okay, this isn't about that. But uh, maybe some of you who don't do checks anymore, you remember the old days when we did checks. And some are still hanging on to that, and that's great. But uh, balancing the checkbook is important, right? So you're in, you're balancing the checkbook, and this happens electronically a lot of times in uh, our system now. So it's still there, but we have credits and we have debits. Anybody with me on that? So when you get money, that's a credit to your account. This much money has gone into your account. When you deduct a certain amount, you pay a bill, you write a check to a friend, you're, you're taking that out of an account. That's a debit, right? And so I, I know you came here to hear about basic uh, accounting. <laughs> but this is, the way that it, this is the way that it works. So when you get a credit... It's, it means to place into someone's account. Even the biblical word that's used here in uh, chapter 4, verse 3, it says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. God put righteousness in his account based on believing in him. This is really important because this is the starting point. It was credited to him 
as righteousness. Financially, credit is a positive thing. And when we talk about credits, we usually mean something which has been added. Um, David goes on to say in uh, chapter 4, verse 5, we'll read it in just a moment, that uh, he uses the very same word. He says, a person is blessed when the Lord doesn't count or credit their sins against them. Okay? Uh, he used the exact same word for credit on both the positive and the negative side. See, it can be a positive credit or negative credit in biblical terms. And he says that God credits those who believe in him with righteousness. He puts that in their account. Okay? And it says that those who are trusting the Lord and blessed are those whom God doesn't credit their sins against them, that he forgives their sins, uses the same word. So until we, we understand this, we can never get out from under the weight of our sin because we're trying to lift the load ourselves. We're trying to be good uh, on our own instead of trusting God and, and letting him give us the solid ground of a starting point. We can never get out under the, uh, under the weight of sin. And there's people that are always trying to lift that impossible weight on their own instead of trusting God with it. He freely offers us his grace. Romans 4 uh, and verses 4 and 5. This is, uh, there's one more verse after this in chapter 4, and then we're going to really focus on chapter 5. It says, Now uh, to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. Okay? However, to the one who does not work but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. So here, Paul differentiates between what is a gift and what's earned. Can you follow that? Imagine your employer comes to you, and I know, I know people are doing direct deposit now, but suppose they come to you with your paycheck and they say, I have a gift for you. And you say, that's not a gift. I worked for that, worked really hard for that. I earned that money. Okay, That's, that's not uh, a gift. A gift is something that's freely given. And so what Paul is doing is he's distinguishing here between earned righteousness and gift righteousness. And so he makes that distinction. A paycheck is not a gift. And so Paul is, is calling out to us. He's holding up before us the glory of living for Christ. Most religions in the world, they live by an accounting system of uh, your good deeds, every good deed that you perform, goes as a credit to your account, okay? And the bad deeds that you do are a debit from your account. And so at the end of your life, the hopes are that your credits will outweigh your debits, and then you can go to whatever the definition of heaven is, okay? That's not Christianity. Christianity is not like that. Christianity is a gift, is righteousness as a gift freely given, Okay, uh, following Christ is righteousness granted, not earned. It is by grace and not through works. And I, w- I want to suggest to you, because I know in our minds, we want to be holy and righteous Christians, don't we? And so then the thinking is, well, what does that mean for doing what's right? Doing what, what's right becomes a response to the grace freely given. Okay, remember in Ephesians chapter 2, it says uh, you're saved by by. Uh, grace through faith and not by works. It is the gift of God, not by works, lest anyone should boast, right? We all know that verse, right? 
Okay, And then it says, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus. In Christ means in the saving experience. You're, once you're saved, you're in Christ to do good works, which God prepared in advance for you to do. So the saving comes first, and the good works follow. Amen. I know this is rudimentary and elementary to us all, but it's so important to get a hold of this because there are times when this is challenged in us. Like, what is my standing with God? Can I really be right with God? I've failed him so badly. How can I really be right with God? And so Paul is showing us here how all of this works. Works come, but they're a proper response to grace. Grace is granted. Righteousness is granted. We stand in God's righteousness as a free gift. And then God says, live in a manner worthy of the calling that you've received. And so now it's positional at first, and then it becomes practical as we walk with God. It's positional righteousness, and then that means that you're granted a place. You're granted a standing with God. Everybody with me on that? And then what happens is, as we're granted a standing and we begin to walk with him in faith, then that righteousness that's our standing becomes practical righteousness as we let the Holy Spirit work through us. But the Holy Spirit can't even begin his work in us, inside of us. He works on us before we're saved. Anybody experience that? He works on us, but he begins to work in us when we come to know him. And what is the outworking of that? The fruit of the Spirit, which is righteous living. So I would encourage us, let's understand our standing and our starting point and then how that works itself out. Notice uh, if you're still in chapter 4, these last verses here, verse 23 through 25, the words, it was credited to him, were written not for him alone. In other words, this isn't just for Abraham. This is for everyone. It's not for him alone, but also for us to whom God will credit righteousness, for us who believe in him, who raised Christ uh, from the dead, our Lord Jesus from the dead, he was delivered over to death for our sins. God placed upon him the iniquity of us all, and he was raised to life for our justification. We can be in right standing with him because he is the living Savior. He died and he took our sins to the cross. Come on, do you appreciate that? He bore our weight. He bore our sin and our guilt. It's an objective thing. It's, you don't even have to feel guilty to be guilty. Did you know that? There are a lot of people out there that they've done a lot of law-breaking and they feel totally justified in it. Well, I just didn't get a good start in life. Like, if they didn't want me to break the law, they shouldn't have made laws like that. And they feel really good about themselves. But that's, that's the problem they lack is shame. Guilt is still there. You're guilty if you broke the law, whether you feel it or not. And that's what hangs over all of us. And some of us feel the specter weight of guilt. They've been, it's been placed on Jesus. We've received the forgiveness, but we're still walking around bearing the shame. And it's a specter. It's not real. It's a, it's a phantom weight. Do you know when uh, somebody loses a limb, they still feel that. They feel phantom pains like... My mom had to have her her leg amputated after a surgery, and uh, she said, I can still feel my toes. There's a phantom weight, and I, I think that there sometimes is the phantom weight of sin that sometimes rests upon us. I think Paul felt that. I think Paul was like, man, I'm the chief of sinners. And he talks about God's grace was given to sinners of whom I'm the worst. 
It's not that he's running around in condemnation, not giving himself a break. He's recognizing what he used to be. He wishes he hadn't been that, but he's so thankful for the grace that has come that has liberated him from that kind of life. And all of us say amen to that because if you are a Christian, you feel that too. You feel the great uh, burden has been lifted. At least the guilt has been lifted. If you carry the shame, I want you to know it's a specter and it's not real and God will not hold you to account because you feel a certain shame for past sins. If they're under the blood of Jesus, they're covered. That's good. Let's look at uh, these few verses in chapter 5 here because this really talks about things that we should rejoice about, about things we should glory in. And I want to mention that in just a moment. Look at verse uh, 1 here. It says, Therefore, since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into his grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God, not only so, but also glory in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, and perseverance produces character, and character hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. I want you to notice some things that we should rejoice about. There's three things today that we should glory glory in. That's not a phrase we use much, like you know, we're really glory in the fact that things are going well at the business. We don't say things like that. But it's important to understand how Paul is using these things. To glory in is to have confidence with excitement. The kind of excitement that wants to talk about it. You ever meet someone, and uh, maybe your husband or wife, or and you know that you're beginning to fall in love? And you just want to talk about that person nonstop? Anybody relate? This is a loveless church. (laughs) Maybe it didn't happen that way for you. Well, love is more than emotions. I'll just let you rest on that for a moment. But but I do want to say that this is this is what this is talking about, the kind of boast. Maybe you when you had your child, you were so excited about it that you wanted to tell everybody, it's a boy. It's a girl. I've got, you know, that's my son. That's my daughter. There's joy in that, and you can't help but be excited. And then, you know, grandparents carry around. They used to in the old days. Now they can do it all on their phone. But all these pictures that unfold from their wallet of grandkids. Let me show you the grandkids. Tell you everything about them. Okay, so the reason is because they're glorying in that. They're so excited. They want to talk about it. And this is what God is asking or showing us in these verses is that kind of glory. To glory in is to have confidence with excitement and the kind of excitement that causes us to want to talk about it. This same word is translated boasting uh, in a lot of places, but this is not boasting about ourselves. Okay, So it's not appropriate for us to boast about ourselves, but it is appropriate for us to boast in the Lord. Let him who glories or boasts Boast in the Lord. It's the same word, to glory in, to boast in. It's excitement that causes us to want to talk about it, excitement that's grown up. And so he's talking about this. Is These are the things that we glory in. The first thing is in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 5. Therefore, since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, 
through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. Okay, so that's the first thing is that since we've been justified by faith, we're excited about this fact. And if we're not excited about this fact, we need to revisit this fact. And maybe this morning will spur us on a little bit. We need to meditate upon what this means for us. It means that our standing has changed when we come to Christ. And maybe it's been so long ago that we've just lived within this standing. We've taken it as yesterday's news. But could we get some new excitement about an old fact today that we have a standing in God? We've been justified through faith. This tells us of our uh, of the condition. Okay, If you've been justified with faith, you have peace with God. There are a lot of people trying to have peace with God without being justified. Like, we can just sort of ease into this relationship and walk with him without ever having to go to the kneel at the cross and say yes to Christ. We just feel like kind of God owes us a relationship. He doesn't owe us a relationship. He's purchased a relationship, and we have to come through the door. Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes through the Father except through me. Anyone who tries to get in another way is a crook trying to steal at a relationship. It's been freely granted. He wants to open the door to all, and it, the way is through Jesus. The way is through Jesus. That He's the way. That uh, The disciples uh, carried on what Jesus said about himself when they were asked by the religious leaders, why are you preaching this name? And they, they affirm, there's no other name under heaven given whereby men can be saved. People coming to God any other way, It can't be done. We can't have peace with God except if we've received and we've accepted the fact that God has placed upon Jesus all of our sins and therefore we can be forgiven because our sins have been placed on him. Not because God just says, oh, it's okay, but because he's paid the price for our sins. That tells us the condition that because our sins have been placed upon Jesus, through faith, we are justified. We're justified. The New English translation uh, translates this, declared righteous. We're declared righteous through faith. And what it means here, what justification means here is to be found in the right and free of charges. Okay, it's not that we've never sinned. It's that the price has been paid and therefore we're acquitted on that basis. Okay, we would still recognize whatever sins we committed, that's true of us. It will always be true that we committed those sins. But the standing that those sins brought before us was condemnation before God. But when you're in Christ, condemnation is taken away because it's been placed on Jesus. Are you with me? That's exciting. And so that our standing changes before God. Our standing is that we stand before him in the right It's right standing before God. We stand before him free of charge. The enemy loves to come and tell us about all of our past sins. The enemy is a wonderful historian. And history is not bad, but the history the enemy wants to bring up is yesterday's news about what we used to be. And he wants to convince us that that's what we still are. But we're not. Because while the enemy comes as an adversary or an accuser, Jesus Christ, the righteous, stands as our advocate, and he says, yes, uh, all of those things are true. He doesn't deny the fact, but he says, but I paid for, the, for those sins myself. And so the person you're accusing stands right before God. 
That's good. So we're justified by faith. And here's the really cool thing. It says, having been justified by faith. Having been justified by faith. When you first came to trust in Christ, uh, it tells us that something began at that moment that continues. Okay, The tense of this verb uh, means here, because of a past action, there are ongoing effects. Okay, You don't have to wake up every day and be re-justified by faith. Of course, we need a continual faith relationship with him. Salvation is by faith from first to last. But there's an action that began when we came to the altar, where, wherever, it, wherever it was, and said yes to Jesus. Something began there that continues on. It's a standing. It's a place that you have before God. By our standing, uh, I mean the relationship that we occupy with God. And it's, it's really broken down into three smaller things here that we have peace with God. We have peace with God. This is a verb in the present tense, meaning because of what happened yesterday, this thing is true of you today. And that thing that's true of you is that you have peace with God. Objectively, that means God is not at war with you anymore. Aren't you glad for that? He's not at war with you anymore. You've been, you've been brought out of the kingdom of darkness and put in the kingdom of his dear son. You're out from under that dominion. You're in the kingdom of God now. And so God is not mad at you anymore. Now, he's not always pleased with our actions, and he may take disciplinary measures against us, but we're talking about the, the tenor of our lives, that his is a disposition of grace towards us if we're in Christ. So I wanted to I want to point that out, uh, that peace here is a lot like uh, in the Old Testament when, when uh, Aaron prayed for the children of Israel. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Give you peace. Give you shalom. Give you well-being because God's disposition is not one of anger. Anytime you see that figure of speech in the Bible uh, to turn his face towards or to make his face shine upon, it always means God's favor. You understand that? <laughs> and I hope somebody will find freedom today in this. You've been living under the weight of past sins, even though they've been taken to the cross. And let's walk out from under that load and let Jesus carry it and be different. And let him grant us our standing in him so that we can finally be free. Some are never free because they've never just left that at the cross and so that they can live as a different person now. God wants us to be free of that. We have peace with God. This is a present tense fact if you've, if you've been justified through faith. Then it says <laughs> we have access to his grace, to this grace. Through Jesus, we have access to this grace. How do we get there? It's through Jesus that we stand in grace. It's not, it's not because we are just become a really good person. No, we have access to grace through Jesus. It's granted to us. And then it says we have this standing. And I look up the word for standing, and it means that something like to have a secure footing. You have a secure footing. I don't personally believe in, in unconditional eternal security, but I think there's security in Christ. That if you're in relationship with Christ, you have security because of your solidarity with Christ. If, you, if you're in a relationship with Christ, if we ever turn away from Christ, 
Salvation is with Christ. He brings us in. Somebody, uh, I think it was Tony Evans one time at Promise Keepers back in the 90s, he was talking about how he was the, he was the chaplain for the Dallas Mavericks. And so because he was chaplain, they gave him a little badge where he could get in the stadium anytime he wanted to. And he said, I've got friends. They can't get into the stadium because they don't have a badge. But I have a badge, and anytime I want to bring one of my friends, I can bring them to the stadium and get them in. <laughs> and so he said, it's good to know Tony Evans because you got access. You know, and he was making this very point that we have access through Jesus. Our relationship with him grants us access into all of God's grace. Aren't you glad for that? I am. And we have a standing. We have a standing with God. We have a secure footing in him. And all of this happens when we put our faith in Christ. He died for our sins. He was raised for our righteousness. All of this granted to us. You might feel like a a scoundrel today, but the fact of the matter is, is that Jesus has already carried your sins to the cross, and you can be forgiven of them right now. We don't have to bear that weight anymore. He talks about a second thing we ought to glory in. This will go rather quick, I think, is our hope. We should glory in our hope. Okay, Think about this for a moment. It says in uh, verse 3, or verse 2, the end of verse 2, we boast in the hope of the glory of God. We boast in the hope. We glory in the glory of God would be another way, another way to say this. Um, probably NIV retranslates that word so that it doesn't sound redundant, but we can glory and we can rejoice and we can have uh, that kind of excitement that has to that wants to express itself, a confidence that leads to excitement that leads to talking about it, about the hope that we have in Christ. We have a hope, and the hope is uh, of the glory of God. Oh, that might sound like a strange thing. Like, what does what does it mean, the glory of God? I think this is referring back to what was lost at the fall. Okay. We were, we're all made in the image of God, and there's certain glory about us, but it's a marred and diminished glory. The image of God has been marred by sin. That we're not, if you look out at our world and you go, man, there's a lot of problems. Why did God create such a messed up world? The short answer is that he didn't make a messed up world. He made a good world. We messed it up. And we continue to mess it up because we, as a collective, continue to be marred. And can I challenge us not to blame institutions? That is a cop-out. Because institutions are people. Right? And so it's people that mess up institutions. It's not institutions that mess up people. Sometimes they do, but it's because the people in the institution are already messed up. See how that goes? When it comes down to it, it's really sinfulness in the heart that messed up this whole thing. And so we're marred, and, and we fall short of the glory that should be ours in God. And there's this can talk about a lot. I think Paul just kind of spreads a, uh, a broad net when he talks about glory here. But I think one of the things he must be referring to is our original standing. Okay, so that's lost. And we're not the people that we should be. Okay, and when you come to Christ, there is a reversal that begins to take place. An instantaneous, miraculous reversal that in time will lead us to become creatures fit for heaven. You know what I mean by that? Like if you think of heaven filled with a bunch of crooked people, nobody wants to go there. 
But if you think of heaven as a place where people in their character are being perfected and being perfected, and if we, we die and we're not completely perfected, God is going to give us the rush treatment and we're going to be ready when we get there because our heart is going the right direction. And so what happens is, remember John Milton wrote Paradise Lost? Uh, Jesus is telling us paradise can be regained. The glory of God in us can be regained. It can be ours because of what Christ has done. And I, I know this because uh, we've, we've heard of the glory of God earlier in the letter to Romans. In Romans 3.23, all have sinned and what? Fallen short of the glory of God. So in our sin, we lost that glorious aspect of what God has for us, both our relation to him as creator and the goodness that comes from that and our standing. You know, none of us can be who we're intended to be till we come to Jesus. When we come to Jesus, there's a piece of our life that was missing that gets plugged into place. You ever try to put together a puzzle and there's a big piece that's missing? You can't find some pieces, and maybe you can't see the picture for what it should be. That piece is missing. When that piece comes into place, you, I can be the Luke that I need to be with Jesus. I can be the Luke that I was created to be. And you know, if I had continued in my sin and my rebellion towards God, I never would have been what God is calling me to be. And you understand this calling, not just pastoral ministry, but the calling that he has in life, that's what we're created for. And God has a unique imprint on you of something that you're created for, but you'll never be that apart from Jesus. You'll be wondering around, who am I? And what is this really all about? You plug the missing piece in, you start to realize this is what I'm for. This is who I'm supposed to be. And it makes all the difference in the world. So in the case of the believers, we've, we've lost that glory. And in Christ, that glory is being restored. And so we can rejoice in that. That although it's not perfected yet, we're still fixer-up projects. Anybody like... You feel like you're maybe 75% through, but there's still a lot of work left to do. Like that, that last 25% is the big portion. Like you got all the, all the deeds, the dirty deeds, the, all those taken care of. But you still got some heart issues. Like I got to quit being resentful and quit being bitter and snarky and hateful and surly. And I'm talking about on a good day. <laughs> right now, I'm just kidding. But we got to take care of those things and let God work through us so that he can transform us into creatures fit for heaven. What we will be will outshine the angels. I hope you know that. And that's no insult on the angels. But what God has made you is different. Made you and me to be. We're, we've got the image of God stamped on us. We're the crown. I th- and this is not pride. We're the crown of his creation. He's all but said so. Right? Let us make man in our image, in the image of God. He created them male and female. He created them. It's beautiful. So that's our hope is that all of this, everything that happens, the details of life, the struggles that we go through is working uh, towards our good and God's glory. Okay, So we can rejoice in that, that we have a hope. This messed up earth is not the way that it will always be. The earth is groaning, waiting for its adoption. And we groan with it, according to Paul in Romans 8. Okay, so we have a hope, and we can rejoice in that. I rejoice in that when I look at, for example, what's going on in Ukraine, and I think about injustice. 
Anybody else think, thank God when Jesus comes that things will be set right? Anybody else glad that oppression will cease when he becomes the visible and known king to every heart? There will be real peace at that point. But in the present moment, we live in the tension between two things, between what has been promised and our future hope. But we can rejoice with giddy joy about the hope that we have in Jesus. And finally, you're not going to like this. We glory in our sufferings. Right? Nobody wants to say yes. You think you're going to get a target on your back. The devil heard you. (laughs) We've already got targets on our backs, so that's already been taken care of. But we have God on our side. No weapon formed against us will prosper. Right? Like the devil can't pluck you out of God's hands. You have to willingly go. Rejoice. We rejoice in our sufferings. We we glory in them. To glory is to have confidence with excitement. How can we have confidence with excitement about sufferings? What Are we some kind of messed up people? Um, sufferings here is trouble involving pain, okay, of some kind or another. Suffering of some kind or another. The, the Greek word that's used here is a word that's related to the sled that they have that has little spiky things on it that they use to uh, to tread out the grain. So what it does is it smashes it down and it strips the grain uh, off the stalks. And the uh, the word for that, they have a little sled, and it's called a thlebo. And I've seen it in pictures. When we went to Greece, we saw one in a monastery. They had an old thlebo uh, in a monastery there, and I was like, I know what that is because I saw pictures from our Revelation study. And uh, that picture for us shows us what, that's the word that is translated sufferings, is to be pressed and, and undergo difficulty. And all of us will do that in one way or another. And some people have more sufferings than others. And I think God will honor those who've suffered for honoring him with their sufferings. So whatever he calls us to in terms of suffering, and I don't want to bum you out, but uh, Peter says, let those who suffer according to the will of God continue to do good and trust him, to trust him and continue to do good. So it means that sometimes, not every suffering, because some things we do to ourselves, right? And some things other people do to us that are not God's will. And there are some things that God allows us to go through that, He's perfecting our character because he's using it as a means to an end. And so whatever category that fits into, if it's unjust suffering or deserved suffering, it can still uh, bring about God's good purpose in us. So we don't glory in our sufferings because we're suffering. I want to make that clear. We glory because of what they produce. Look at verse 3 with me here. It says, not only so, but we... We also glory in our sufferings because, because is a, the reason why, because we know that suffering does something. It leads down this path. Okay, When, when we suffer and we respond to it correctly, it leads uh, to one thing and then another, and it ends with hope being perfected, which is us being restored in one way or another to God's image and purpose. Okay, so let's go through this quickly. Uh, 
We don't glory in the sufferings because of their suffering. We glory in what they produce. Uh, as a matter of fact, without uh, what they produce, suffering is meaningless. And there's a lot of people in life that think it, it's just like that. That why, why does it matter and what is the purpose in all this suffering? Well, if you're a Christian, God says he promises, not just says, he promises that he will use it for good in your life. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through Christ who loved us, loves us. Um, and uh, Romans 8.28, we know that God works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Uh, I know sometimes we get tired of hearing that, but can we just gather in from every experience of life the all things and understand that God can use them for his good? Right? Okay. Uh, produces that these things, the sufferings produce something, and all of these things produce something, uh, can can mean to cultivate. Uh, it was interesting, Joe mentioned, uh, Zach talking about God is more like a farmer. This is, this is what um, figure is being used here. When it talks about producing, you know, sometimes if you pronounce it a little different, produce and produce, do you see the similarity there? Produce is the fruit of your farming. Did I lose anybody on that? Produce, produce. Do you hear the difference? <laughs> okay, so it's two different. It's two different things, but it's talking about the same kind of thing. It's talking about one is uh, the verb, the other is the noun of what's being produced. Is produce beautiful? We all lost now. But produce can be cultivated. You get the image of this farmer or gardener toiling in their field, going through the pains of broken down equipment and um, stubborn mules or and the ox has just died or whatever, and you're trying to produce something. Okay, I, I want to be clear that what's being produced here is not salvation. Jesus accomplished that for us. What's being produced here is maturity. Okay, And, th- and that takes work. It doesn't come to us accidentally. We don't just grow and mature. We have to work through stuff. Like, uh, you know, you probably told your kid, you need to get the big boy attitude on because this is not working. Quit acting like a baby. God works on us, and he produces something. But that farmer is trusting in the cycle of planting and reaping. As I said, our, our standing has been gifted to us, but as we, we endure suffering and deal with different things that come into our lives, we're, we want to see that God's promise come true, that this is the hard time, but there's going to be the harvest time, and that's going to be good. You understand the faith that it takes to be a farmer? I mean, you know from uh, everybody telling you that if you plant the seed and you treat it in this particular way and your soil in this particular way, it's probably going to, and the rains come, it's going to grow a crop. But you're living in faith for several months waiting for that to happen, right? I know this is an agricultural uh, place, Alaska, except for Palmer, right? For the most part, uh, you know, we, we know what seasons are about. We know maybe our produce is the snow is, is going away. After several months, it looks like it's never leaving, but the sun will come and the snow will melt. And so produce has happened. Paul assumes the same thing is going to happen in each of these. Suffering, he says, 
produces perseverance. And then he kind of leaves off with the verb, but it's implied in the rest of these. Character produces hope. He doesn't say produces, but character, hope. And, um, oh, perseverance, character. Suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance produces character. Character produces hope. And then he says hope does not produce disappointment. Hope does not produce disappointment. Okay. So suffering produces perseverance. When we go through hard things, we get tougher in our resolve. I don't know if you ever thought, like as a teenager, I was pretty lazy. And I thought I was a good hard worker. I went to Peru with Mike Sandstrom, if you know him. I mean, that guy could work. And I felt ashamed of myself a little bit. But I learned, hey, hard work has another level. And sometimes when we go through suffering, we realize that perseverance has another level. I mean, we're ready. If we're soft, we're ready to give up. When it gets a little bit hard, I've got a hangnail. I can't go to church today. It hurts so bad. I might shake somebody's hand and it would get rubbed the wrong way. That's ridiculous, right? But you understand that sometimes if we really listen to our own excuses, we would probably be ashamed of ourselves. There's a lady in the Philippines, uh, and this isn't true of Alaska. I think we're troopers and we're ready to to endure whatever comes. There's this lady in the Philippines that, uh, in, in other places, let me say, people will use the littlest excuse to get out of doing something for God. This little lady in the Philippines, she's passed away now, but she used to walk something like six kilometers to church, and I think she was in her upper 80s. And it's not cool there. It's hot. Sometimes it's raining. And it didn't matter. She would get out and she would walk to church because she wanted to be where God was moving, what God was seeing, what God was doing, being a part of the ministry that was taking place there. And to me, that challenges me. There's another level because I can stop on my excuse limit. keeps me about here. I see that, and I'm pushed up. But then you go through suffering. It's kind of like that. Like You think that this is tough. Like you lose a ball game when you're a kid, and you think it's the end of the world. Oh, I lost, and you're crying big tears. And Dad's saying, it's going to be okay. Trust me. You're not even going to think about this when you're a teenager. Dad, you don't understand. This hurts so bad. And you get past that. You realize, okay, that was nothing. There's a new level of suffering that you've endured. The broken heart from being rejected by a girl, right? <laughs> oh, this will never end. And you get past that and you realize that the, the sufferings of life can produce real strength of character. Suffering produces perseverance. So you get tougher and you're able to go through more as time goes on. And if you've been through stuff, you can say to other people, it's okay, I've been down that road and I know you can make it through. I'm tougher because of it. God's helped me to be stronger. Perseverance produces character. Okay, so when you endure on the same course, you're producing a kind of character. And this is not just character, but proven character. When you continue to do this, the right thing, we become better people. The, the kind of character God approves of. Suffering can produce a kind of sweetness of character about it. Suffering leading to perseverance, perseverance to, a, to character. And most importantly, it pleases God and it demonstrates our commitment to Him as we go through the trial. We can say to people, 
and I can't remember the lady who said this, all things will be well, and all things will be well, and all manner of things will be well. Even when we've gone through the hardships of life, as we persevered, and there's a sweetness and a strength that settles in on a person like that. Character produces hope. It's hard to see the connection at the first glance of how character produces hope. But if you think of it like this, that trials require us to trust God. Are you with me? You know, when things are going well, sometimes our prayer life slips a little bit. Like, I don't need to pray because things are going pretty well. And God's, God's answering prayers in perpetuity, and I'm doing pretty good. And then the hard time hits, and it drives us to our knees. And we learn to trust God, and we learn the fellowship of his sufferings, and it takes us into a deeper uh, connection with who Jesus is, and it helps us to trust him more, right? When you trust him more, you find that your strength, your faith is strengthened. Um, hope, it, hope is like a muscle. When you exercise it, you get stronger. I, I think exercise is a really interesting metaphor, don't you? Do you realize what you're doing when you lift weights or exercise? You're breaking your muscles down. You're breaking them down. Who would intentionally do something like that? Oh, God, you're sending me through such hardship. He's saying, oh, you do this every day. You put yourself through hardship. You go away sore. You ask yourself, why do I do this? Hurts. Right? And then you look at yourself in the mirror, and you you look a little more buff. Look a little bit better. You feel better about yourself. But you intentionally destroyed your muscles so that they'd be stronger later. And that's what's happened with exercise. And I think when it comes to hope, when hope is challenged, we get stronger. It's like a muscle that we exercise. And then it says, hope doesn't produce disappointment. It says, hope doesn't make us ashamed. But ashamed, um, biblically speaking, is usually the shame that comes with disappointed hopes. Okay, so... Uh, this is shame which comes when we've counted on something and it doesn't happen. It means to be disappointed by hope. Hope doesn't have uh, the same substance in Greek philosophy that it has in the Bible. In Greek philosophy, and a lot of times when we use hope today, we simply mean wishful thinking. Like, we, th- we hope that will happen. I hope it goes well. I have no certitude of it. We have no conviction that it will we're just desiring that it will, and we're kind of saying out loud as a wish or a prayer that things will go well for somebody else. But when you have biblical hope, you have substance to it. It's based upon promise. It's based upon deep convictions that because God is in control, all manner of things will be well. It's going to be okay. I remember uh, F.W. Borum wrote a book, and I can't remember which book it's in, but he writes these essays, and one of them is, all things will be well. And uh, people would come to him as a pastor and tell him about their problems, and he'd say to them, all things will be well. All things will be, trust God, all things will be well. And uh, this old lady had fallen sick in his church, and he told her, he said, just trust God and all things will be well. Well, she ended up passing away, and her daughter I believe it was her daughter came to him and said, I thought you said all things will be well. And he said, all things are well. She trusted the Lord. Where is she now? She has total well-being in God. 
And I know that sounds simplistic, but this is where hope is leading us. When we have hope in God, we, we have a, a certainty and we live by it that all things will be well, that God is going to see a better day for us ahead. Now, I want to assert here because we've been talking about faith. Faith is not lawless, the lawless alternative works. It leads to a standing with God that freely is given to us. But a person who's really putting their faith in God in the biblical sense will trust him, not just for forgiveness but for and life after death, but also trusts the guidance that he gives and uh, trusts him when you're going through the difficulty. That's the kind of faith God is calling us to. And you see that when you trust him through all of that, it produces a certain kind of lifestyle. These are things that we can rejoice about. We can rejoice in the fact, we can rejoice and, and be excited in a weird sense. It's not weird, actually. Um, in a certain sense, about our sufferings because of what they produce. We can be excited in the giddy sense about the hope that we have, that this world is not our home. That's going to take a change of mind. We have to change our paradigm for thinking about life. This is the small part of life right now. The big part of life comes after this. There is life after life after death. God is going to give us a resurrected body in which we will live eternally. This is a brief time. We're here for a moment, and then life vanishes away. Life is but a mist, right? James, here for a moment, and then it vanishes away. Uh, David says, uh, we have these few years before us, 70, and if by strength, 80. He, didn't, he lived to be 70 years old. That's all David lived to be. But his life with God goes on. And I want to challenge us today to, to look with this kind of hope. Why don't we stand together? Thanks for your attention this morning. These are good truths. I hope God will marinate our souls in this. Let's take a moment and bow our heads. Let me ask you today, are you putting your confidence in Jesus? He's the one who bore your sins to the cross. If you haven't yet done that, I want to say the good news about what Jesus has done is that he died for our sins. That's one of the, the simplest scriptural statements about what Jesus has done. He died for our sins. He died for our sins so that we don't have to bear them anymore. All of us are sinners. All of us are in need of a Savior. If to Jesus today we said, be merciful to me, a sinner, his response is one of grace, and he puts us in right standing. He grants us righteousness when we trust in him. Where is repentance in all of this? Repentance is a change of mind. We just say to God, be merciful to me. I'm recognizing about myself what you said is true about me, that I'm a sinner in need of salvation. And today we can see our sins forgiven and a new life begin. Be merciful to me, Jesus, a sinner. And I want to trust you with my life. I want to trust you with my life. He died. He not only rose again, and he rose again as Lord over death. And those who trust in him, though they die, yet they will live. I'm grateful today. Richard, I believe Richard was trusting in the Lord. And if that's true about him, God knows, then he lives on.
with the Lord and all who've gone before live on. I have conviction my parents are living today with Jesus. And one day I'll see them again as I see Jesus with my own eyes. Amen. That's good news. If you've begun to trust him today, I want to I hope that what we've talked about uh, will really settle in, that you stand in a different place of position with God because of what Christ has done. If the devil has been using you as a punching bag and you've been beaten up over past sins, today will you hang on to the great and precious promises that God has given you in Jesus, that you are at peace with God because of Jesus. Turn to him with all of your life. Stop, uh, leave that sinful behavior behind, leave the sinful attitudes behind with God's help and cling to Jesus and trust in his forgiveness and walk with him. And he'll change you day in and day out, but, but trust him. Trust him for that initial standing that he's going to place you where you need to be. He's going to call you justified. He's going to say your sins are forgiven and you've been cleared of all charges because they've been placed on Jesus. Trust him for that. And you, you can tell the devil that you've been forgiven. Don't talk too much to him. You can tell him Jesus took care of that. That's all you need to say. Jesus took care of that. Thank the Lord. Today, uh, finally, I'd like to say to you, if you're struggling through some suffering or some kind of difficulty, God gives a grace for that. He gives special grace for that to help you. And he said he'll be near to the brokenhearted. He said he's a very present help in trouble. Even if the earth should give way and fall into the sea, he said, I'll be there. And he comes from a place of security. There's a city, who's, uh, a river who's, that uh, runs through the city of God and it's set upon, the city is set upon firm foundations and we can trust that God will answer us in the way that we need and he will not be shaken. Even if we feel we are, he will not be. So cling to him. And if you're struggling through sin, keep trusting in Jesus. The Bible says, though a righteous man falls seven times, he gets back up. Keep getting up and going after Jesus. And he will perfect your character. He will perfect your character. He will will weed out the sin and the sin seed, and he will cause you to be more like him because God's purpose and plan is to conform every one of us to the likeness of Christ. And that's yours and mine. Thank you for joining us today. If this ministry has impacted you, we would love to hear about it. You're welcome to message us at akmaranatha.com forward slash contact or message us on Facebook at Maranatha Full Gospel Fellowship. We pray you are blessed by the message and have a wonderful week.